Our God is amazing. You can be seated. I want to uh, invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 8. This morning, as we turn there, we're going to examine uh, verses 9 through 24. We'll begin in prayer. We will then read the text uh, for our consideration. Then we'll examine the text for observation and application. I want to thank you, church, for putting up with me as I uh, have battled uh, this injury and my um, preparation uh, each week uh, as this has progressed seems to be more and more uh, confined to very, very short periods. And so uh, I hope that you'll bear with me uh, this morning uh, as well. Uh, let us uh, pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we praise you for your great and abiding love toward us. We thank you for the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. We praise you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that enables us to walk in holiness. Father, we ask that we would treasure you, the gift giver, over and above the gifts that you bestow upon us. You are the giver of all good things. And so this morning we ask for another gift of your grace upon us, that we would be moved in obedience to what your word commands of us this morning. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you are turned to Acts chapter 8, as you are able, would you uh, please stand for the reading of the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God from Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached, but when but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when saw, Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on, uh, on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that none of what you have said may come upon me. This is God's word. 
Y'all may be seated. You will notice quickly there's a theme to the message this morning. And it's this. Jesus paid it all. The mantra of the born-again believer, Jesus paid it all. To say that Jesus paid it all is another way of saying that it is all of God's grace. To say that Jesus paid it all is to say that salvation is a work of grace from beginning to end. Jesus purchased the people of God out of the world to the praise and glory of the Father. The sanctification of a Christian, that is, what a Christian's growth in holiness, her growth in obedience, and the transformation into the image of Christ is an act of God's grace. Jesus paid it all. Every gift of God that comes thereafter toward the people of God is given because of, through, and from the one who paid for it. And only through the one who paid for it. Jesus paid it all. If you want a summary of a victorious, spirit-filled Christian life, Jesus paid it all. That is the summary of victory in a Christian's life that we proclaim. We're going to see in the Scripture this morning that if you wanted to get the ire up of the apostles, claim that this could be bought. Claim that it's Jesus and some legalistic sort of form of living. And you would inspire the ire of Peter or John, especially Peter, and especially Paul, who would say, what is wrong with you people? Do you not know that Jesus paid it all? Are you saying that the cross of Christ is of no effect? And I think for us as Christians, we, we ought to live in that same sort of uh, mode uh, of thinking, of understanding, of living un according to that truth. It's not Jesus plus. Our Christian life is not Jesus plus. It's simply that proclamation we sang. I love that song, by the way, one of my very favorite hymns of all time. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. What a, like, that is the summation of, of what I understand the Christian life to be. Can we, can we complicate it? <laughs> Certainly. Do we? Always, right? Uh, I think it was Karl Barth who said that he was summing up the Christian life after many years of theological study and he boiled it down to one thing and he's like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Right? 
It is much more simple than we often try to make it. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Well, I want to um, take a look backwards just a little bit to get us some context. So if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 1. I want to look at verses um, 6 through 11 uh, just a little bit to give us some context as we're going to lead into. So I'm doing a lot of lead in to get us into uh, our passage this morning, but I think this um, should be helpful. So uh, Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus answers uh, the, the times and the seasons. His answer to this question of, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus says, the times and the seasons for God's power manifesting itself and the timing of his advance, his, his advancement of the kingdom are in his hands alone. And then he, and then he tells them further, power will be given to those like you who believe that God has given them this great gift in Jesus Christ. He will give to you another gift. He will give you the power of the Holy Spirit and you will proclaim a singular truth. You will proclaim the truth that salvation is a grace-given gift and that my death was the payment. My resurrection was the confirmation. And when this Holy Spirit comes upon you, you soon will receive the guarantee So as we look at verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1 here, while they were gazing into heaven as they went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. As Jesus ascends to heaven, the apostles are still sort of perplexed as to what this means that he has gone away. The angels assure them of this. Jesus is the authority of heaven. He assures them that this Jesus is the Christ. This Jesus is the Christ, the one who paid it all. This Jesus is the master, as the Father has so declared him in resurrecting him from the dead. And that now, having ascended to the throne of heaven, he is the giver of all good gifts to men. The reason why he can give the gifts all good gifts to men, anything that comes after, is because He paid for them. So when you see Him ascending into heaven, don't fret, this is good news for you, brothers. Because in the same way He went, He has the authority of heaven to come again. He has the authority of heaven to bestow great gifts on His people. Jesus paid it all. 
And from the day of Pentecost forward, you see, the apostles of Jesus Christ declare with boldness, under threat, under punishment, under, under even death, they proclaim this, there is no other name under heaven or earth by which a person may be saved. Their singular mantra is this, Jesus paid it all. We are witnesses to His death. We are witnesses to His resurrection. We are witnesses to the fact that He has ascended on high and is sitting on the throne. He is the authority of heaven on earth. He is the one who paid it all. He is the giver of great gifts. Jesus paid it all. Now, to pervert that truth would always bring a very strong rebuke from the apostles. Because of this, I think, the price of salvation is high. It's a high cost. The price is perfect holiness. The price is unblemished, selfless sacrifice. The cost is a cross. The cost is voluntarily self-sacrificing humiliation and suffering. Any payment that falls short of that cost is what? Sin. Any sacrifice that falls short of that perfection that God commands is sin. He commands perfect holiness, perfect self-sacrifice, perfectly a perfect willingness to suffer humiliation and shame to the praise and glory of God the Father. Imperfection. Anything to fall sh that falls short of that. Any payment that you might give that falls short of that is sin. So, here we are as we sit in this room. Every one of us. Oh my goodness, what is before us? There is a debt I can't pay. There's a punishment I deserve. In Romans chapter 6, uh, I know that you guys are uh, familiar with this passage. I'm going to read it uh, for our sake. In Romans chapter 6, Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Follow this with, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, it is only Jesus that could pay the high cost of salvation. Jesus paid it all. People cannot meet the demands in themselves. God's grace is given as a gift, and it is then the only hope for mankind. Jesus paid it all. That is the apostles' message. That is our message. Jesus paid it all. Well, let us now dive in to this text in chapter 8. We're going to look now at verses 9 through 13. 
But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city, and he amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So here we are in our story, uh, in our unfolding of the kingdom of God, as it were, since the day of Pentecost, and God has moved now the people out. The gospel has come to Samaria. The people of God are moved by persecution and by threat. They are moved by the love of God for sinners. They are moved in accord with the uh, foreordained plan of God to bring the gospel to people. Uh, and especially, they are bringing now the gospel to people who they formerly have despised, right? So new on the scene here is a man named Simon. He's known in the historical accounts as his last name being Magus, Simon Magus. He was a magician of great renown. The people of Samaria spoke of him as, as though he were someone great. He could draw a crowd. He was a magician of great renown. He could draw a crowd. People paid attention to him. Even, even going as far as to tribute his magic as the power of God working through him. They even called him great. And at the same time, there's Philip preaching the gospel of grace, the good news that Jesus paid it all, and many believed and were baptized. Do You see, today I think there's sort of two sorts of churches out there, isn't there? There's the church that is amazing in entertainment. They can draw a crowd. They can draw a crowd. And then there's the church that says, but Jesus paid it all, and that's all I know. That's all I have to declare to you is the good news of Christ. I don't want to draw a crowd to me. I don't want to draw a crowd to a great musician. I don't want to draw a crowd at all if the crowd does not come and fall on their knees and say, Jesus paid it all. I don't want a crowd at all. Well, it got me thinking about just things that have gone on this week and it happens most weeks. I, I connect with some other area pastors, right? And as we sit down, usually one of the first things out of a pastor's mouth to me is he's going to ask, how well is the ministry going? If there's multiple, multiple pastors in this meeting, maybe another guy answers it first before I do. I usually like to go last after they talk. But you know what the first thing out of his mouth is when he's asked this question? Is something about how healthy his church is based on the number of bodies that can be drawn. So he might say something like this, my church is healthy, we have 180 in attendance. 
And then the question becomes from the maybe the other guy who's with him who doesn't really have 180, maybe there's 60 who show up on a given Sunday morning. What are you doing that draws so many people? You must be doing something well. Well, I've heard some responses. I'm going to read some of them to you. And and for those who will watch this later on YouTube, you may be offended by what I have to say because I know you and you know me, but um, you can be offended all, all you want. It's what God's Word says about this situation. So they might answer this way. I go where the people are and I make sure that I'm well liked in every place that I go. You see, sometimes I go and I play my guitar in a pub. Sometimes uh, I do some, some sleight of hand tricks and I go to various events to do this. I make sure that I'm well liked everywhere that I go. You see, our church succeeds because people think very highly of my talents. People think a lot of me and my personality and people like how charming I am. Well, a pastor has actually said these very words to me just this week. I told the group of, uh, of pastors that I was meeting with in this week is, I don't know how to do any of those things that you're talking about. So I don't know how. Um, it's not in my nature, not in my character. I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. I don't want to do it. Uh, there's a piece of me that would say, you know, I would love to be the guy who comes in the room and makes everybody feel good about themselves immediately, Right so that I am well-loved and well-liked and all of those kind of things. I just don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do the things that you're talking about. But here's what I do know. I do know this. All I know is that the Scriptures has called me to be obedient to preach the gospel of God and has called me to pray. I'm called to preach and to pray. That's the end of what I'm called to do. I can, I can hopefully get better and better at preaching God's Word clearly, concisely, and compellingly, right? But I can pray. And I can deliver what has once been delivered to me. That Christ died for my sin. That's all I can deliver. I can deliver to you that this invitation is open to you if you would just repent and believe. I can do, deliver this. And I pray. And what do I pray for? I pray this, that God would make us disciples who make disciples. And so they even asked a question uh, the other day, what is your goal for the new year? My goal for the new year and my prayer for the new year is that we as a church would be obedient to the Great Commission, that we would be those who are disciples, who are making disciples everywhere we go. I want to notice also something here in verse 13 that is a bit controversial, maybe. But it is what the Scripture will show us. That not everyone who makes an ascension mentally to the truth, who verbalizes that they believe, who has verbalized that they believe and maybe even are baptized are actually converted Christians. Not everyone. Not everyone. 
Look at verse 13 with me. Even Simon himself believed after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Soon, as we move forward in this passage this morning, we will see that Simon is attracted to the gift and that he's not converted in love to the giver of the gift. He would desire to remain as verse 9 says of him. Verse 9 says of him that he himself was somebody great. He would prefer to, to that to continue to be said of him. Somebody great. Somebody that people would look to. He wanted to be somebody that people would look to. That they would be gifted by just his presence and his ability and his his talent and his ability to entertain, they would think him somebody great. Well, now, verse 14, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they, lift, they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So here we go. This section could cause much controversy, okay? And it has. It's caused many divisions in the history of Christianity and it is still a point of denominational separation today. This is the idea. We would proclaim, and I think all of you would agree with this statement, that Christians who have repented and believed the gospel, receive the Holy Spirit. But the idea that this seems to tell us is that this group of Christians repented and believed the gospel, and yet they had not received the Holy Spirit. For one group of Christians, they understand that baptism in the Holy Spirit comes at conversion. I think we would agree with this, that it is an inward experience uh, for someone and, and, and for someone then to insist that there need to be a second experience of grace would probably cause me and maybe many others to be worked up to the point where we would say, are you suggesting that, that the work of Christ is somehow incomplete? That the death and resurrection of Jesus is somehow not enough? That I need to wait and hope that someday the Holy Spirit will fill me up? That I have to wait for some experience that may or may not happen? I can never really know if I'm a converted believer or not. I can't know unless I haven't had this second coming. There are some who would suggest that. And some of our Pentecostal brothers suggest just that. They suggest that a second word of grace is needed, that it's necessary, that a baptism of the Holy Spirit after conversion empowers one for the work of the ministry. And so I ask us to just ponder this for a minute. 
Uh, why doesn't the Bible give us a unified explanation as a pattern to follow? Why is this seemingly out of kilter, isn't it? That they've been converted, they believe, they are baptized, and yet the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen upon them. And there's some second um, baptism that needs to come. I would suggest that I want us to think about this in, in terms of, uh, of two terms. One being normative, and another term, occasional. So, the occasion here is that Philip has been moved to Samaria, and he preaches the gospel. And uh, the response is just as you would have expected, that many would believe and be baptized. But what was normative, different than this occasion, what was normative is that the gospel at that time was preached in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, after somebody repented and believed, the uh, apostles would come and lay hands on them, imparting to them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And here they are removed to Samaria. You know, on this particular occasion. And Luke sees this as he's writing this uh, text. He's seeing that in verse 16, that on this particular occasion, it did not happen immediately. That this is some... He, the fact that he's writing it tells us that, that this was an occasion that was not normative. That this was an occasion... There are many reasons that, that some have given. Is it, it could be that Philip desired to wait upon the apostles from Jerusalem to join him. So he refrain, refrained from laying hands on them until the, the, the ones who were in Jerusalem could come and witness and see, look, look at the power of God saving these folks here in Samaria, even to Samaria. God is bringing the gospel and it works. It works here. It works amongst these people too. Could it be that Philip just delayed for that purpose to witness to his own brothers, hey, something's going on here. At any rate, uh, they re he, uh, the apostles join him. He refrains from laying uh, uh, of hands on them. And we don't know the, the exact reason for the delay, but the rest of Scripture indicates that what was going on in this case was occasional and it was not what was normative at conversion. See, the experience of the promised Holy Spirit is what is promised in the very first preaching. In the very first preaching in Acts chapter 2, look at verses 38 and 39. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter, I mean uh, Paul, he later indicates that what is normative is that a Christian can immediately testify to the assurance of their conversion and the presence of the Holy Spirit. He testifies to this in Romans uh, chapter 8 and verse 9. You, however, 
are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. His assumption is that when you are converted, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So, for whatever particular reason, this occasion, there are all these who repented and believed, and yet the Holy Spirit hadn't come upon them. And now, Peter comes, they lay hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And I believe that they were all converted prior to even receiving this Holy Spirit, except for one. Except for one who declared that he repented and believed. He wasn't indeed a converted man, and that is Simon. And how can we tell? Let's look at verses 18 and 19. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. You see, the power of God is a great gift of great price. And it's not a power that can be humanly harnessed. Contrary to what the Led Zeppelin song proclaims, there is no way to buy a stairway to heaven. Right? The power of God to salvation, the power to live in holiness and obedience to the kingdom mission, the giving and receiving of the Holy Spirit, it is a gift of God purchased in full by the heaven-sent Son of God. Jesus paid it all. Contrary to the thinking of Simon Magus here, contrary to the smiling preacher down in Houston, Texas, your contribution to his ministry sows no seed of hope for the salvation of your loved one. Your gift of support purchases no power from God for success in your Christian life. Because the truth is... Jesus paid it all. And now we can see by Peter's reaction to his desire for this power that Simon is indeed an unconverted man. Though he confessed, though he was baptized, look at what Peter says Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You see, you thought you could pay for it. That's a sign you're not a Christian. Because Jesus paid it all. You thought you could buy it. It cannot be bought, not by you. It's already been purchased for you. You have neither... A lot, a part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And then he commands him to repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And think about Simon's answer. That's, a, that's another sign of a lack of conversion to me. So here's the apostle, and he says, Pray that God might grant you repentance. 
to, to the depth of your heart, that this bitterness and gall that you hold, this hardness of heart, that God might intervene for you. And look at what Simon says. Pray for me. He turns it back to Peter and says, you pray for me to the Lord that none of what you have said may come upon me. That's a sign of the unconverted, isn't it? The one whose heart is really hammered by the Holy Spirit and is convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment knows that they must get on their face before God. I can't have you do it on my behalf. I must get on my face before God and pray and plead that He might grant me repentance. Peter here is clearly stating to Simon, your desire to trample upon the gift of God is a clear indication that you have no part in the gospel. The true convert understands that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The true converted Christian understands that without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. The true converted Christian understands this. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Any good gift that comes to me from above is one that has been given to me because the one who purchased it sits on the throne of God and has authority to give good gifts to His people. Jesus paid it all. The gift of the Holy Spirit is an act of God secured by the self-sacrificing love of Jesus Christ who died on a cross for sin. The death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ is proof that He is both Christ, that is Savior, that He is Master, that is the authority of heaven. He is the giver of good gifts to men. Jesus paid it all. The true convert understands that the Christian life is not about sin management. It's not a sin management program. And that human performance cannot secure salvation. Nor can it give you assurance thereof. You can't perform it. You can't buy it. It has been purchased. It has been purchased by Christ. And we who receive it, receive it by faith. The Christian says that it is Christ's performance, not my own in which I live. And you know, Paul sums this up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It sums up this whole thought for me. It says, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Does this not say that Christ paid it all? God, in His grace, made Him who didn't know sin to become sin for us, to pay the price for us. And it is in Him, in my confession, that Jesus paid it all, that He performed everything, that I then, by the power of the Holy Spirit given to me as a gift, become the righteousness of God through Him. You see, Jesus paid it all. I wonder if you can tell what I titled this message. Jesus paid it all. 
And as now we take a moment of silence to allow the Holy Spirit to make the Word of God have its full effect in us, I want us to take time, too, to think about as we go to the Lord's table. Remember, as we go to the Lord's table this morning, all that Jesus has done to make us His people. When we go to the table and we break the bread, Jesus paid bodily for me and for you. We are united in that truth. Jesus' blood was shed that I might walk in newness of life because He purchased me. And in addition to that, that's enough. That's enough of a great gift, isn't it? That Jesus paid it all for us. But because He paid it all, He bestows even more gifts upon us. He gives us people to love. He gives us His Holy Spirit to transform us, to enable us to actually walk in the truths that the Scriptures teach us to. We can do what it says because He did what He did. Let us think about that as we uh, take a moment of silence and then go to the table together.